0: To my church, as Roden said, we're reading from Acts 1, verses 12 to 26. If everyone's ready, we can start. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the son of, sorry, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward from his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known in all, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, akeldama that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up with us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas who was called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleventh apostle. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jason, and thank you to Vanessa
1: for praying, leading us in prayer just a little bit earlier. I think we need to pray just one more time before we come to God's Word, so please join me. Heavenly Father, we, we just acknowledge this morning that uh, we, are not, um, we, we are not alone in gathering around your Word. Your, your people are gathering all over the world to sit under the authority of your Word, to hear you speak to them. To be encouraged, to be comforted, to be corrected, to be transformed by the power of the Spirit and through your word to us. Uh, we think of Martin in Zambia. Lord, please will you bless him and his ministry there. Please bless the church in Zambia. Uh, bless our brothers and sisters who are meeting like this in Zambia. And we do uh, again think of our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and in Russia, who, and especially the Ukraine, who who no doubt would... would would love nothing more than the freedom that we take for granted just to, just to gather like this, um, and to pray and to sing God's praises and to sit under His Word. And we, we lift them up to you, Father. Please will you be merciful to them and sustain them through this very difficult time. And we know that there are Christians all over the world who are brothers and sisters in Christ who, who just don't enjoy the freedoms we enjoy and, and for whom meeting such an ordinary thing that we take For granted is such a difficult and dangerous exercise. Father, please will you sustain them wherever they are. And please will you uphold them. And please will you give them great courage uh, that, that, that it isn't in and of themselves. And please, Lord, will you help them to be faithful under enormous pressure. Help them to be faithful to you. Sustain them and uphold them by your spirit, we pray. And as we now, Lord, come to your word... We come um, deserving nothing, meriting nothing. We come only asking that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would change us over the next few minutes for your glory, that we might leave here and go emboldened to live for you and to take your name to the ends of the earth. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. What is God's plan for my life? Don't worry, it's a rhetorical question. I'm not having an existential crisis. It's a question that we as ministers often hear. It's a common question. What is God's plan for my life? And it's a genuine question asked by genuine believers who desperately want to know God's will for their lives in this chaotic and often confusing world. It's normally attached to a specific decision. Do I marry this person? Do I quit this job? Do I buy this house? Do I homeschool my child? My child has this wonderful opportunity. It happens to fall on a Sunday during church. What do I do? What do I do? These are questions of guidance. Questions of wisdom. They are questions of discerning God's will in a specific, concrete situation. How does God guide us? Does he do it by signs? Many Christians believe that he does. I'm sure there's some sitting here this morning who believe that he does. I know of one lady who immigrated, left the country, and took a job overseas because the company that that were offering her the job called her twice. And so she took that second call to be a sign from God. We often talk about God opening and closing doors. Is that how He guides us? Life is a kind of a maze and God will get you through to the end by closing off the dead ends and opening the paths that lead us home. An opportunity in life on this kind of model of guidance, an opportunity in life, regardless of its merits, is an open door. A door that God Himself has opened. And an obstacle in life is not a hurdle to be overcome. It is a door that God himself has closed. Why would you even try, begin to try, to open that door? God closed it. Or maybe maybe God guides us through our feelings. I know of one man who felt, he felt very strongly that God wanted to bless him financially. And so he acted on that feeling, on that guidance from God, By buying a BMW X5. How does God guide us? Our passage is so helpful because in it we see God guiding the early church. That first generation of believers in the church. We see the acts of God in guidance. We want to learn from that. But before we do, we just need to get our bearings. We need to remind ourselves of where we are and how we got to where we are in the book of Acts. We need to just remember what's been happening. The Lord Jesus, you'll remember, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he and the Father gave the gift of God the Spirit. And while they were waiting, he appeared to them and he gave them their mission. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. After Jesus was taken up, his disciples returned to Jerusalem and while they waited, they spent their time in prayer and in praise and in reading the scriptures. It was this prayerful, biblical reflection on everything that had happened that seems to have prompted the apostle Peter to talk to the wider group about a problem, a specific problem. And the problem was that the apostles, this specific problem in their context, was that the apostles were not complete. The Lord had chosen 12. But as we know, through betrayal and defection, they were down to 11. What should they do? What was God's will for their lives? By the end of the story, Matthias is appointed in place of Judas, And the apostles are restored to 12. But how do we get there? How do we land up there? This was clearly a key decision in the life of the early church. They have to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. It has to go via apostolic witness. The eyewitness. The eyewitness of the 12 apostles. Men chosen by Jesus who witnessed everything from the time of John's baptism to the ascension. Everything. And there had to be 12 because the church was the fulfillment of Israel this was the fulfillment of ancient promises that God had made there had to be 12 I don't think I'm overstating it by too much to to say that the future of the church itself depended on this decision so how did they make it? how did they make their decision? wrong question how did God guide them? to the right decision. If his guidance led the church at this key fork in the road, it is certainly going to lead us when we are puzzling over whether to get the cell phone upgrade or not. It's going to lead us in the small decisions. It's going to lead us in the big decisions. And crucially, it is going to help us discern the difference between the small decisions and the big decisions as individuals but much more importantly as a church family so what does God's guidance of the early church look like what do we see there well I think we can see at least five things five ways in which he guides them so these are the five the Lord plans the Lord speaks the Lord listens the Lord gives us each other The Lord gives us decisions to make. The Lord plans. He speaks. He listens. He gives us each other. And he gives us decisions to make. So firstly, the Lord plans. We know what the plan is by now. Jesus tells his disciples in no uncertain terms, the plan is to make him known to the very ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul says it a different way. The same thing. But he says it like this. The plan is to place everything under the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, what happens when people come to know him as he truly is, the king of the universe. That is God's plan. To place all things under the saving, loving lordship of King Jesus. And we saw from last week that the Father plans and promises The Son executes that plan as He rules and reigns over it. And the Spirit enables and empowers us to be part of the plan. So just a quick refresher. Have Acts chapter 1 over there and look there with me. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, God the Father promises the enabling presence of God the Spirit. Chapter 1 verse 7, God the Father sets the timing of this plan, His plan, by His own authority. 1 verse 9, God the Son is lifted by the glory cloud to the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns and exercises all of that authority in the service of his Father's plan. Acts 1 verse 8, God the Spirit comes to empower, will come at, at this stage in the story, will come to empower God's people in implementing the Father's plan. God has a plan. And it's an ancient plan. It's a plan from all eternity. Look at verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Some of the details of God's eternal plan were written down 10 centuries before the Christ had even come in the time of David. And those details had to be fulfilled. Those plans, those promises had to be fulfilled. The words had to, sometimes translated in some versions, it was necessary. That word in the Greek is one of Luke's favorites. And it's a technical word that he uses to describe the absolute necessity of God's plan coming to pass. It's an absolute necessity. Why? Because it's God's will. And God's will always prevails. Never mind what Vladimir Putin's will is. Never mind what his plan is. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth plot in vain? Vladimir P- Putin may have a plan, but God Almighty has a plan. And his plan always prevails. Always We see that same word, that original Greek word, it is necessary. We see it again in verse 21. You can't see it in some English translations, but it's there. And in other words, these things have to happen. Because they are part of God's plan to put all things under the saving, loving lordship of King Jesus. The point we're making is a very simple one. God has a plan. And so the question, our question of guidance, then becomes not so much what is God's plan for my life, but what is God's plan? God's plan for every creature in the universe is that they come under the authority of King Jesus and then invite others to do the same. Now since you are a creature in the universe, I take it, Please see me afterwards if that's not the case. That is God's plan for you. That you come under the full, saving, loving lordship of King Jesus in every aspect of your life. In every aspect of your life. And then invite others to do the same. The question is, are you living out that plan? Have you arranged the details of your life according to God's plan? We can make three mistakes in this area. They are as plain as the nose on your face. They're going to be obvious to you, but let's just make them explicit. The three mistakes we make in this area. The first one is this. Instead of aligning the details of my life with God's plan, I try to align the will of God with my plan. Isn't that what we do? And so God's role in this, in this universe is to bless my plan. To make my business successful. To make my children successful. To give me the lifestyle of my dreams. To give me the good and keep away the bad according to my definition of good and bad. Do you see that this is not a small mistake to make? And yet it's one we make so easily. It's one we make all the time. When you do this, when we do this, we are inverting the relationship between God and us. Instead of God deciding on the plan and empowering us to be part of it, we decide on the plan. And then we gently instruct God through prayer and tithing and all seemingly good things like sacrifices of our time, our money, our energy. We subtly instruct God to make our plan happen. It's a contractual relationship with your divine domestic worker. We would never say it out loud, but that's what it reduces to in our lives. That's what it is in, in the way we function. That's the first mistake, to put it politely. The second mistake is to think that God's plan for your life is somehow disconnected from his plan for the whole universe. God is doing something in and through the church, we know that, but that's somehow different from what he's doing in the details of my life. What God is doing through the church has no bearing on what he wants me to do in my workplace, in my finances, where I live, and so on. Now, if we drive a wedge between those two, we end up with a spiritual part of our lives and a secular part of our lives then we are very pious and committed to God's plan in the spiritual part of our lives on a Sunday. But we're equally committed to our plan in the secular part of lives. That's Monday through Saturday. Do you see whose plan is getting the lion's share of our commitment? And so God ends up serving as our divine domestic worker in the secular part of our lives. So if you disconnect God's plan from your plan, you default back to mistake number one, which is to try and align God's will with my plan. We end up back there if we drive a wedge between God's plan for the whole universe and God's plan for my life. Either we end up in mistake number one or we just become utterly confused about what God's plan has to do With the secular part of my life. And that leads us into the third mistake. The third mistake also stems from this disconnection between God's plan and your plan. But this time the disconnection just leaves us utterly confused and paralyzed and terrified to make any decisions. You know that God wants, you know in your heart of hearts, you know he wants something from your Monday to Saturday. But you just have no idea what it is. And so you're paralyzed. You're terrified of making decisions outside of his mysterious will for my life. What if I step outside of his plan for my life? I have no idea what that is. But what if I step outside of it? Will I step outside of his blessing and his favor? If I buy this car, not the other one, have I forever locked myself out on the outside of God's goodness? When we split the spiritual and the secular, that's where we end up. When we split God's plan from my plan, that's where we end up. In a state of utter confusion, paralysis, terrified to make any decisions. The Lord has a plan. There are three mistakes we make in relation to his plan. One, we try and conform his plan to my plan. Two, we divorce his plan from my plan, so that my plan ends up dominating anyway. Or three, we divorce his plan from my plan, and both and our understanding of both just disintegrates. We just end up in confusion and paralysis and we're terrified to make any decisions. Big mistakes. What's the remedy? God has a plan. We need to align the details of our lives to his plan. The hard part is how do we do that? How on earth do we do that? Short answer, with his help. But what does his help look like? That's the rest of the sermon. The Lord plans. Secondly, the Lord speaks. Verse 16 again. Have a look. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In the scriptures, in that Bible that you're holding in your hands, God speaks through the words of men. It's nothing less than that. God speaks through that word. And in speaking, he shares the details of his plan. At least some of the details, those he felt were necessary for us to know. As we come to verse 16, we've just got to remember, we've got to have in the back of our minds, what the risen Lord Jesus said to his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Do you remember that? Let me refresh your memory. He said to them, how foolish are you, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? Have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So while the apostles were prayerfully waiting for the Spirit, they were no doubt, with those words ringing in their ears, they were no doubt searching the scriptures to see what those scriptures had to say concerning Jesus. Moses and the prophets wrote about him Because he is the centerpiece of God's plan. It all turns and orbits and pivots around him. And as they searched what God had said, they discovered something that God said that had a bearing, a direct bearing on their own specific situation. In reading the Psalms, Peter discovered these two things. Firstly, that Judas had fallen under God's judgment. He'd left his place as an apostle desolate. Vacant, And secondly, that place needed to be filled. It was a problem. It needed to be filled. Point is that the Lord guided Peter by speaking through the Scriptures. He guided him by giving, first of all, his overall plan. And then he also guided him. He added guidance upon guidance by helping him to see how the details of their specific situation related to that overall plan. Overall plan, the apostles must witness to the name of Jesus. They must take it to the very ends of the earth. Details, there must be 12 faithful apostles to show that God's plan for the church had its roots in Israel. And so Judas must be replaced. The Lord guides by speaking through the scriptures. He plans, he speaks, he listens. When someone would ask Charles Spurgeon, what's more important, reading the Bible or praying? He would reply by asking, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? (laughs) The Lord speaks and he listens. Both are the breath of life for those who seek his guidance, and that's us. We need Bible reading and prayer like we need to breathe in and to breathe out. Together, they are life-giving. While the apostles were waiting for the Spirit in Jerusalem, they waited in an attitude of prayer. They were absolutely soaked in prayer. Look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. They praised God in public in the temple. They prayed with devotion in the privacy of their own room. They were of one accord. They were united and they were devoted. What was it that was uniting them in their devotion to prayer? What what was it that kept them with one accord? What pulled them together in this way, in their devotion to prayer, can only be God's promises and God's plan. God promised to send His Spirit who would empower them to take the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what they were praying about. That was the source of their unity. That was the source of their devotion. And out of that general mood of devoted, united prayer emerged God's guidance on the specific issue of Judas. What do we do about Judas? What is God's will for our lives when it relates to Judas? Now, if we want God to guide us through prayer, if we want that same unity and devotion in our prayer life, then we have to keep God's plans and God's promises at the center. If our plans and our commitments are at the center, of course we're going to disintegrate. We've got as many plans and promises and commitments as there are people in this room. How are we going to hold together? If God's plans and promises are at the center, we will be united and we will be devoted in our prayer. Strange as it sounds, prayer is less about conforming God to our will than it is about conforming us to God's will. Does that land? Are you hearing me? Prayer is less about conforming God to our will than it is about conforming us to God's will. Now that's counterintuitive. That's not how we think about prayer. We want to conform God to our will. But we know that it's true. We know it from our ordinary experience with just ordinary human interactions. You want to go and speak to someone, you've got a long list of things you're going to say. You're going to tell them this, and you're going to tell them that, and you're going to tell them until you actually encounter them. Then it's very different, isn't it? It's very different. Because when you see them face to face, you remember who it is you're talking to. And all of a sudden, your whole demeanor changes. Even your message changes. It changes because this person is a person and not the hypothetical other side of your argument. This is a real person. And so the way you think about the issue, your message, your tone, even your delivery, it all changes in the act of speaking, in the act of interacting with a person. Now, if that's true at the level of human interaction, how much more so is it true at the level of prayer when the person we are speaking to is the triune God of the universe. Prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. It doesn't conform His will to ours. It conforms ours to His. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down, to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God, God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being pulled into God by God, while still remaining himself. The Lord guides us through prayer. Number four, the Lord gives us each other. Even though Peter is the clear authority on the scene, it's very obvious that he's the one in charge. He does not make this decision alone. Verse 15 shows us that there were at least 120 people gathered, and we can say for sure that at the very least, the other 10 apostles were instrumental in this decision. In verse 23, they put forward two men. In verse 24, they pray for the Lord's help. This decision was not about one gifted decision-maker. This was a community gifted with wisdom, guided by the Lord, it was a community and wisdom is still to this day very much a team sport God guides us through the godly mature believers that he puts around us the wise woman with a difficult decision to make always allows God to guide her through the counsel of others he has given us the gift of each other and he guides us through that gift Number five, he gives us decisions to make. Clearly the apostles had a decision to make. And God gave them the capacity to make that decision. They applied wisdom. We might call it sanctified common sense. It's another name for wisdom. They used sanctified common sense to decide on criteria for apostleship. And then how to apply those criteria to the candidates. We can actually see the wisdom unfolding in the way the story is narrated. So we see the wisdom in the criteria that they chose. It makes preeminent sense that they used the criteria they used. An apostle has to witness to the name of Jesus, has to take that name to the ends of the earth. And so apostles had to be eyewitnesses. They had to see everything from the time of John's baptism to the time of the ascension. They had to witness it all themselves First hand. Because that's who they were witnessing to. They were witnessing to the Lord Jesus taking his name to the ends of the earth. And so they had to know who they were witnessing to. And witnesses of such an important message had to be credible. And so it had to be first hand. They had to be eyewitnesses. That's the first criteria. Eyewitness. We need an eyewitness. Eyewitness. That's the first criteria. But wisdom says that's not enough. Of all those who followed him, Jesus chose only 12. And Jesus chose the 12. That must be the second criteria. That's why the apostles gave the final choice in the matter to the Lord, to the one who knows every heart. Literally, to the heart knower. Wisdom reminded them of their limits in making a decision of such gravity on which the whole future of the church depends. And so they turned that final decision over to the Lord, it was his to make. As the only one who can see hearts, as the Lord of the church, it was his prerogative and his alone to choose his apostles as the foundation of the church. That's what the casting of the lots is all about. It's not being suggested to us as a way to make decisions today. In fact, after the coming of the Spirit, there is no other record of casting lots in the whole of the New Testament. This is the very last time we see it. The very last time. It's the last time it happens in the Bible. And there are two other occasions in Acts when pe- where people are chosen... For specific ministry roles, there's no casting of lots. But in both cases, the Spirit is active in guiding and leading. So it seems like casting of lots fell away once the Spirit had come. It was used in this instance by a gathering of believers who did not yet have the Spirit in His fullness and needed to acknowledge that this was the Lord's decision. The point is this. The apostles had a decision to make. They prayerfully thought through the options together and then made the decision. And in the process, they were flexing their wisdom muscles. Remember, these are the founding fathers of the church. They are going to come under intense pressure, intense persecution. They're going to have many, many decisions to make. It's it's a grace of the Lord Jesus that he gives them decisions to make, to strengthen them, in their wisdom, to grow them as decision makers. One way God guides us is to give us the capacity to make decisions and then he allows us to make them and to learn from them. We walk in wisdom. Wisdom is not a download. It's a journey. So let's recap. Because that's a mouthful. How does God guide his people? He plans. He speaks. He listens. He gives us each other. And then he gives us decisions to make so that we can grow in wisdom. That's how he acted in guidance guidance in the early church, and that's how he continues to act today. He doesn't guide us primarily through signs or open doors or our feelings. It's not that those things are impossible, he's the Lord. He can do whatever he likes. But it's not the way he's chosen as the ordinary way in which he's going to guide us. It's not the bread and butter of guidance. And of course, his way is perfect. And his way solves so many of our problems relating to guidance. So let me try and show you what I mean. The number one lesson, the thing that I I hope if you just take one thing away, the thing that I hope that you take away is that God has a plan. His plan is to place all things under the loving, saving lordship of Jesus Christ. And that means taking the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Guidance, therefore, is not about getting God to align himself to my plan, to my feeble plan. Guidance is about aligning the details of my life with his plan, his glorious plan. If you miss that, then you've fallen at the first hurdle. And God's guidance is always going to be nothing but a mystery to you and a terror to you. And you are always going to be doing some Christianized version of throwing the bones. Once I get the fact that guidance is about God's plan, then I'm ready to align the details of my life with His plan. To align my plans with His plan. And he graciously gives us the means to do that. Through prayer, through Bible reading, through consulting wise people in the church family, I can begin to conform the details of my life to God's plan. And he has given us tremendous freedom to do that. Tremendous freedom in Christ to exercise our decision-making muscles and grow in wisdom. So just to illustrate this tremendous freedom in Christ, I like to use the Congo River as an illustration. Simply because it's the most impressive body of water I've ever seen, with great respect to the Bromphantine Sprite. The Congo River is something else. I've had the privilege of standing on the Kinshasa side of the river. Rafa will be envisioning all of this as I speak. And looking across the river to Brazzaville, on the other side of the river. You can barely see it. It's a capital city. You can barely see Brazzaville on the other side. That's the width of the river. This thing is spectacular. God's plans and purposes are like the Congo River. They are like the flow of a mighty river from the mountain to the sea. They are inevitable and unstoppable. He invites us to swim the river. If the river had lanes like a swimming pool, there would literally be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lanes. Pick anyone you like. Pick any lane you like and swim in it. The only thing you mustn't do, the only thing you must not do, is swim upriver. You cannot swim upstream. You cannot swim against the Congo River. You cannot swim against the tide of God's plan for all of history. If you do, it is only going to exhaust you. You are not going to get anywhere. And if you persist in swimming upstream, you may even drown. Pick any land you like, just swim with the tide. That's our freedom in Christ. Here's another way to think of God's guidance. We we started talking about this last week. He has given us a compass, not a road map. He hasn't given us an app that says in 200 meters at the roundabouts, take the third exit to the left. He simply says, head north. And we only have one true north. Christ. His saving lordship over every aspect of our individual lives. And our life together. Christ. That's our true north. Head north. That's all he says. So for example. If Jesus is king. I won't buy the house of my dreams. For lifestyle reasons. Because the financial pressure. Will put my marriage at risk. And my king values my marriage. More than he values my comfort. If Jesus is king, I'll join the running club rather than buying the treadmill. Why? Because the running club gives me more opportunities to make friends and witness to the king. If Jesus is king, I won't take that job because I know my temperament, I know my weaknesses, and I know in that environment I'm going to compromise and I'm going to bring dishonor to my king. Or, if Jesus is king, I must take that job. Because I I know there's going to be pressure and as hard as it's going to be, I can do that job well and I can do it with integrity and I can be a light on a hill in that very dark environment. So I must take that job. If Jesus is king, we as a church might commit to praying for believers in the Ukraine. We might commit to finding opportunities to get involved in any relief efforts that there may be. And we might... Take a deliberate commitment to forego any grumbling, any self pity, any anxious panic, the anxious panic that we see all around us, around the bride place, on the WhatsApp group, and offer instead the hope, the confidence, the peace we have in Christ. How do we arrive at these decisions? By knowing God's plan by reading his word, by pleading with him in prayer, by seeking the counsel of his people, and by exercising the enormous freedom we have in Christ. In the end, we get there as individuals, as a church family, we get there because the Lord acts in guidance. Let's pray. Father, how do we even begin to thank you for the majesty of your plan? To see the name of Jesus exalted in all of the earth, in my life, in the life of this church, there's nothing that exceeds that plan. That is the best of all possible worlds. Thank you, Father, for the privilege. Of being part of that plan by your grace but lord we are wanderers we are wayward please will you guide us and lead us by your spirit and father we praise you that you have revealed your plan to us that you speak to us that you listen to us that you give us the gift of each other and you allow us to grow in wisdom lead us and guide us we pray for
0: christ's sake amen